Thank you so much, Minnesota. I'm so honored to be here. And I really feel privileged to be in the room of so many people that are influencing a state and you really are changing your region. I want you to know King is in the room. As we came into worship tonight, I sense the presence of God. I sense miracles that are going to take place tonight. The Lord's going to encounter you in ways that you've been praying for, breakthroughs that you've been believing for, things that you've been f fasting for. I want you to know the king is in the room tonight. And I just want to even you to increase your ex expectancy tonight. And I know the expectancy is high, but I want us to push it even further because when God's in the room, anything's possible, Right? So I'm so honored. Pastor Mark, thank you for having Sean and I. When we got the invitation, we couldn't say yes quick enough uh, because we so believe in the Assembly of God denomination, but we also believe in the state of Minnesota and what God's doing here. Sean has had the privilege of partnering for years, even decades in this state in a lot of different ways, has a relationship for years. So we're just honored to be able to partner. But this is actually my first time partnering with all of you. So I'm privileged you made space for me. So thank you for that. And then I have the privilege of following my husband. Who got something out of my husband's word last night and today? Wasn't that good? You know, I get the privilege of hearing my husband minister all the time, and I can honestly say I never walk away not receiving something. I always walk away challenged, inspired, and wanting more of Jesus. Now, that's good preaching. And before I was even married to my husband, he was my favorite preacher. And so when the Lord allowed me to marry him, I was like, yes, you do love me. I get incredible teaching all the time. I mean, I would love my husband if he wasn't a great preacher, but he's a phenomenal preacher. And so what a gift that I get to be able to sit underneath your ministry. Your ministry has impacted me more than anyone else's ministry. And so thank you, baby, for just running after God like you do. It's such an honor to run with you. I have a book. Uh, my first book is, but not my last it's called Singled Out in a Couple's World. I didn't get married till later in life, and I found myself at the age of 19 running hard after Jesus, uh, wanting more of God and in full-time ministry from the age of 19. Then for the next uh, 13 years, I would be pastoring. I would be executive pastor, associate pastor, running schools of ministry. Pretty much any position in the church, I probably had it at some point in life. But I found myself running hard after God, yet being single and having that longing and that desire for companionship and to run with someone. Do I have any singles in the house that relate to that desire? I just want to declare over you that if you're single, that your relationship status actually does not dictate the call of God in your life. I want to declare over you that you don't have to put a pause button on the call of God in your life, but rather it's time for you to go full in for God, be about his business, and he'll be about yours. I didn't plan on writing a book because when you're walking out your own story, it doesn't seem too significant. Anyone relate to that? But I found myself pastoring in Los Angeles, California, primarily young people, and a lot of people that were new to Jesus and not knowing how to do singleness, loving God, walking in purity. Fast forward, I found my schedule packed with pastoral counseling appointments of people saying, how do I do this? And so I ended up preaching a series about what it is to wait on God's timing, what it is to be content in the contending, believing for God's promises, and taking the pause button off your life. They made me promise I would write a book, so this is me making good on that promise. But if you know anyone that is single or you know someone that's waiting for breakthrough in their life, regardless if it's singleness or not, because this is really the principles about what it is to wait in the midst of the contradiction yet for the promises of God. Anyone relate to that? And so if you know someone that needs some hope in their singleness, I'm passionate about reframing singleness 
singleness because it's not a curse, it's not a filler season, but it's actually a season to be stewarded in your life and it becomes the foundation for which God builds your ministry upon. Amen? If there's a bold single that wants it, first come, first serve, just run up here. Yes, girl. Yes, in Jesus' name. I had a feeling. I'm going to ask you if that's okay to stand up. Because as a prophetic voice, I'm going to begin tonight prophesying over you. I came tonight with the word of the Lord, but I come with the spirit of God in me just like he is in you. I want you to know that I heard the Lord say as I was preparing for the session tonight, that I heard the Lord say, declare over them, prophesy over them. These aren't just words. I really believe that when the prophetic word goes forth, it takes root within our spirit and our heart. And I heard the Lord say, prophesy over them, it's not over. I want to say over the person who was recently diagnosed with cancer, it's not over over. I want to speak to the parent who has a prodigal son or daughter and I want to declare over you it's not over. I want to speak to the pastor who's gone through a church split which feels like you're losing your ministry. I want to declare and prophesy over you it's not over. I want to prophesy to the person tonight that messed up yesterday that is struggling with addiction even coming into this room tonight. I want to say that the sovereign God and the king of kings the great I am he is in the room tonight therefore it's not over I don't care what your medical diagnosis I don't care what the doctors have said we serve a God his name is healer his name is the great physician and I want to declare over you it's not over I want to declare over the person who needs provision who needs breakthrough that we serve Jehovah Jireh our provider and it's not over I want that to take root in your spirit in your heart tonight because we serve a God that we need to be reminded of how big he is and how small our problems are. Tonight there's going to be an exchange of a belief system where our problems become big and our God becomes small. Because in the room tonight there's going to be an exchange where God becomes big and our problems become really, really small. Because when God's in the equation, he changes anything and everything in one moment. And some of you have been feeling the defeat and the discouragement of the narrative of the enemy. But you came here tonight, among other things, to receive a renewed mind, an encouraged spirit, and hope from the Holy Ghost that he is actually working on your behalf, and it's not over. I want you to say with me, it's not over over. I want you to say it again with me. It's not over. Speak to the situation and say, it's not over. Say over your church family. It's not over. Say over your family right now. It's not over. Say over your body right now. It's not over. Over the dreams and destinies in your life. It's not over. So, Lord, I thank you that every ounce of discouragement and doubt, every familiar spirit that wants to minimize who you are is eradicated in this room, is eradicated out of our spirits, our heart, and our thinking. And I ask you, Jesus, 
for a divine exchange in the room of who we serve and how big you are. In one moment, you can resurrect the dead. In one moment, you can heal the person who has been diagnosed with a terminal issue or disease. Lord, in one moment, there can be an encounter and the hardest of hearts become the greatest converts. In one moment, all it takes is one encounter with you, Jesus. So Lord, I thank you over this room, problems, obstacles, challenges, seasons that have been elongated of grief and pain and mourning are becoming really small. And you, God, are becoming really big. I break off a spirit of heaviness and I call forth the oil of joy in the room. Lord, I pray a divine exchange in the atmosphere tonight. Lord, I thank you that hope is arising because the spirit of God is coming forth once again. Before you sit down, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, it's not over. Tonight, I'm going to dive into the word. I love to break down the word. One of my favorite things to do is preach the word because even as I'm preaching, I might have a mic in my hand, but often I'm preaching to myself. Anyone ever relate to that? And when I get in the word, my, my faith gets built up. And I feel like tonight the Lord wants to build our faith and be reminded of how big he is. I know we know that, but there's a fresh revelation that's available of how big our God is. 2 Kings 4. I'm going to be reading about the Shunammite woman. Who knows this story? Probably every hand's going to go up in the room tonight. My hope and prayer is that we come at this with a little bit different angle and provoke within you some tenacity in the spirit. We're going to start in verse 8. I'm going to actually preach a little bit different than how I normally usually I'll read a portion of scripture and then I'll just break it down. We're going to go verse by verse uh, because I'm going to actually go through a lot of text tonight, but it's with the intention to release what I believe is a prophetic strategy for this hour for you. Can you hear this word tonight as literally a blueprint of an invitation of a prophetic stand for fresh faith? Because that's really what I believe God is doing in the room tonight. Let's start in verse 8. It says, one day Elisha went down to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. So let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay wherever and whenever he comes by. I felt like the Lord wanted me to bring a word tonight talking about making space for what God's doing. See, what I love about the Shunammite woman is she recognized when the man of God came by, not because of the amount of Facebook followers he had, not because of the amount of views he had on YouTube or because he was polished or looked altogether, but because she sensed the anointing and the spirit of God on this man. She looked at her husband and she said, we have to make room for that. I want that in my home. I want that in my marriage. I want that impartation of what he carries. So what did she do? She made space for what God was doing, what God was saying, and what God was on. What did the prophet represent? He represented the word of the Lord and the move of God. She made physical space in her home. 
In 2023, I believe there's an invitation in the church to actually step into a less is more season. Meaning, we're not actually called to do more in this season. We're actually called to create more space for his presence. Because pre-COVID, we had a lot of program that took up a lot of space, but we were actually doing a lot of empty exercises that did not lead us to intimacy. If we've learned nothing from the past clutter, it is to actually open up more real estate in our lives to actually let the presence of God reside in our life. As there was an opening up for the presence of God, this woman actually had to become intentional about creating space. Anyone ever feel that tension when God's wooing you to go deeper with him? You can feel the wooing, but your schedule's full. I want to encourage you in this hour, do not ignore the wooing. But will you respond to the wooing? And that's going to begin tonight. There's an invitation, and I believe I'm not saying something's new for many of you. I believe for many of you tonight, this will be a confirmation of a subconscious conversation, of a quiet conversation you've been having with the Lord, but feeling the tyranny of the urgent always pulling you into a place of distraction. But the Lord is saying tonight, will you build with intentionality a space and a place that is uninterrupted for my presence to reside? See, what did this woman do? She actually had to create space in the upper room. It was a place that was undistracted. It was the high place. It wasn't a place that was shared with other guests. It was only a room for the prophet. I heard the Lord say as I was even preparing and praying in the spirit this afternoon, the Lord says, I don't want any more shared space. God wants space that is reserved exclusively for his presence. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of connection. Her intentionality actually created an expectation, and an expectation is atmosphere of transformation and miracles. So she began to host something that shifted her home simply because she made space. See, we need to begin to look at our lives and actually say, what's taking up our mental space? Does it bring us closer to the presence of God? What about your emotional space? Are we consistently, daily, hourly, forgiving, making sure we're unoffended? Why is this so important? Because the space of your heart actually creates the atmosphere of your expectation. If it's cluttered with offense... If it's cluttered with unforgiveness or bitterness, you're actually robbing yourself from a place of intimacy that's available. See, it's not just the natural space. It's the mental space. It's the emotional space. It's the spiritual space. And God is saying in this hour, can you be intentional about creating a place that is not shared with anything else? Let's keep reading. Verse 11, one day Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to this upper room to rest. And he said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak to her. And when she appeared, Elijah said to Gehazi, tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you've shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? 
No, she replied. My family takes good care of me. Later, Elijah said to Gehazi, but what can we do for her? And Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elijah told him. And when the woman returned, Elisha said as she stood in the doorway. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The doorway is what she stood in before the prophetic word was released. What does that represent? That when you receive the word of the Lord, there is a doorway. There's an opportunity to walk through and come into agreement with what God's prophesying. You can either come into agreement. It represents transition. When you walk from one location to another location, you actually walk through a doorway. There's a moment of transition when you go from here to there. That's what a prophetic word does in your life. When a prophetic word is released, it creates a bridge from the natural to the supernatural. It creates a bridge from the ordinary to the extraordinary, to the natural, to the king of kings, the great I am. What does it do? It pulls you into an invitation of what's available, but the prophetic's always looking for a place of agreement. So standing in this doorway, she's called back to the prophet, and the prophet says this in verse 16. Next year, at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. Now listen to what she says. She says, no, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. The prophet spoke to what was barren, and I heard the Lord say, Minnesota. She didn't even want to believe for it because she was so familiar with it. She was so used to being barren that even when the word of the Lord came for a prophet that she knew was a man of God, she had believed that so much she created space and financially invested into it. That's how much her conviction and how deep her conviction went, this is a man of God. But when he spoke to the place of disappointment... When he spoke to the place of grief, when he spoke to the familiar spirit, she backed up and she said, well, I don't know. Hold on. Don't deceive me. Don't get my hopes up. Don't let this happen and not come to pass. I heard the Lord say, I'm going to prophesy to you tonight, but can you break agreement with the familiar spirit? Can when you hear the word that God's about to rele release revival in the state of Minnesota, can you actually believe it? Can you actually believe that when God is prophesying over your church, over your ministry, over the call of God in your life, that you're not caught up in what was, but you're standing in the doorway of expectancy, and when the prophetic word comes, you step into agreement and say, but God, if you said it, so be it. Because the enemies always want to pull you back into why it can't happen. But the prophetic beckons you into the invitation of what can be. Here's the prophetic word that here this woman who actually wasn't after anything other than hosting the presence. But what I love is the presence of God, the prophet through the presence of God said, I want to bless her because she's made space. See, whenever we make space for the presence of God, there will always come a blessing when our only motivation is to host it. We have to understand the significance of when we take the intentionality to create space for the presence of God to reside, there will be a ripple effect of the blessing. 
But what I love about her is when they offered to talk to the king, the commander, all their networks, all their connections, she said, no, I'm good. All she wanted was this in her house. All she wanted was an impartation of this atmosphere that this man of God, this prophet brought. So when they decided, they felt like the Lord says, they'll give you a son. All of a sudden she's faced with, am I going to believe the word of the Lord? Well, clearly she believed it because we're going to keep reading. Verse 17, but sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at that time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. One day, when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. And suddenly he cried out, this is the child, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. So the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, the child died. She carried him up, and she laid him on the bed of the man of God. And then she shut the door, and she left him there. This is the moment when the unthinkable happens. This is the moment when the promise and the prophetic word, she's actually believed it. She's gone through the doorway. Anyone relate to this? You got all the courage. You got all the faith. You said, God, so be it. I believe it. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in the unimaginable. But how did she respond is a prophetic blueprint on how we're to respond in the midst of contradiction. She models to us the picture of how to respond when you have a dead thing lying on your lap. What did this woman do? She took the child and she went up to the upper room. She took what was dead on her lap and she took it back up to where she received the prophetic word. She went back to the place where the presence of God resides in her home and the location which she had carved out for encounter. She took what was dead on her lap and she decided and made a conscious choice because remember, when you're standing in contradiction, you have a choice whether that's going to be a scene or your conclusion. Is that going to be a chapter in your story or is that going to be the end of your story? See, the enemy's trying to give a final say for some of you in the room tonight. But your current circumstances are merely a chapter. They're a testimony in the making. But they're not the conclusion. But you got to rise up and step over the grief. you got to rise up and step over the dead thing that's sitting in your lap. It's not over. So what does she do? She takes this child. It's unimaginable, right? She stands up. It doesn't say she cries. It doesn't say she panics. It says she takes the child. She goes upstairs and she lays him on the prophet's bed. And this woman of God has a posture of resiliency, a posture of faith. She's not in crisis. I'm sure she's scared. I'm sure she doesn't quite know what to do other than go to the presence of God. She had enough 
of being around and in the presence of God that she knew when crisis came, she would not let it overtake her. She knew that when crisis came, she had to get to the presence. So I want to talk to you tonight about maybe what's on your lap that's been dead for a while. You need to get it to the presence of the Lord. Because it's only in the presence of the Lord that things get resurrected. Some of us have been walking around carrying some dead things. You're like, I don't know what to do with this. Get to the presence of the Lord. Lay it at the feet of Jesus like we were singing about earlier tonight. Some of us need to be reminded that we serve a God that is not stressed out over your circumstances. I find great comfort that when I might be freaking out, God is not. That when things feel out of control, he is still in control. We serve the Redeemer, the Restorer, the one who is able to work all things for his glory. He is the finisher. He is the author. He's our source. He's our door. We need to be reminded who we're taking the dead thing to. He's resurrection power. I want to speak faith into your heart right now over the thing that's been sitting in your lap. The world and the enemy has tried putting thing after thing after thing on your lap. But tonight, we're standing up in the spirit. And we're taking them to the presence of God. Because when we go into the presence of God, that's where resurrection power happens. Verse 22, she sent a message to her husband. Her dead son is up in the prophet's room, and she sends a message to her husband. And she says, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Why go today, he asked. It is neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath. But she said, it will be all right. I'm sorry, did I just hear a declaration of faith? In the midst of crisis, in the midst of the dead thing, in the midst of the contradiction, in the midst of the in, unimaginable, in the midst of the crisis, did I just read a statement of faith? It will be all right. Because, see, she had been in the presence of the Lord. So she saddled the donkey. She said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. There was about a four to five hour ride on a donkey to Mount Carmel. This is a posh, wealthy woman of means. This is not a woman who would be riding a donkey. But sometimes extreme situations call for extreme measures. I want you to know there are going to be some of you tonight that the Lord is going to ask to do some very extreme things or things that are out of your comfort zone or things that might even feel beneath you. Things that might feel like, well, I'm above that or I don't need to do that. And the Lord's like, but I actually called you to run to my presence. I actually called you to get into a position where you're fully pursuing me and there's no more shared space. See, what I love about this woman is she didn't care about her money. She didn't care about her real estate. She didn't care about what she looked like. She was a posh, wealthy woman on a four to five hour ride on the back of a donkey because she was about getting her son resurrected. Come on, somebody. When your child's life is at, at the line, so to speak, you're going to do whatever you can. If there's a loved one that's in a crisis, you don't care. You're throwing no holds bar. You're all in. You're going to do whatever it takes. Here's this woman modeling, but what is she doing? She's running to the prophet. Verse 25. 
As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elijah saw her in the distance and he said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything's fine. You know what I love about this? She doesn't settle for the assistant. She doesn't settle for the man who's been around the presence. She doesn't settle for Gehazi who's observed miracles. She doesn't settle for Gehazi who tells stories about what Elisha has done. She doesn't settle for the messenger. No, this is a woman of God who's like, get me to the prophet. Get me to the authentic encounter with God. I don't want to just hear about it. I don't want a subset version of it. I want the actual presence of God. Get me to the prophet. And she basically pushes right past Gehazi because Elisha, as we read, had sent Gehazi to find out what's actually going on. What does she do? She pulled out the holy hip. Krista, what's the holy hip? It's when you're walking toward what God has told you to do. But there's a little bit of distraction. There's a Gehazi getting in your way. And you just begin to walk. Gehazi, it's like everything okay. Boom. You just keep on walking. Sometimes you just need to pull out that holy hip and get those distractions and detours right out of your way. Because there's always going to be that person that will try to tell you their story, their experience, their testimony that is incredibly defeating. And you'll find yourself full of faith, going after what God's. And you'll be in kind of that tender spot where you're guarding your peace. Anyone relate? You're like guarding your faith. You're like, okay. I know I'm in a tension right now, but I'm just, I, I feel the faith of God. But you also know you can't let every, anyone just, you can't let just anyone speak to, to you in that situation. You know what I'm talking about? Because you're in this journey of like you're contending. And I just heard the Lord say, not everyone who's been a part of your circle in this previous season can go forward in the place of faith that I'm calling you to in this hour. Some of your inner circles are going to begin to shift, but I felt the Lord say, don't be discouraged by who I removed because I'm going to replace them with people that are going to run the distance of faith with you because he's called you to radical places and spaces. He's called you to do things that are unprecedented. He's called you to rise up like never before. But there's some people, there's been some naysayers with the best intentions that God says, uh-uh, pull out that holy hip. Get Gehazi out of the way. See, she does not settle for the assistant. She wants the legit anointing. And I, I have to speak to this simply because we have a celebrity Christianity culture. And we equate followings and polishness and whatnot. And we equate that with what we think is the anointing. Do not mistake in this hour gifting versus anointing. Someone can be incredibly gifted. It does not mean they are anointed. The anointing is what breaks the yoke. The anointing is what makes darkness cower. The, the anointing actually is what sets the captives free. The gifting might get you inspired and feel good for a moment, but it doesn't have long-term transformation in your life. 
Be wise about whom you allow to speak into your life when there's an enemy that's wanting to build a narrative of defeat in your life. This is the hour that could be the church's finest hour if we choose to step into our identity of who we are. But it requires an intentionality of our posture. Verse 27. But when she came to the man of God of the mountain, because remember she told Gehazi, it's fine. She fell to the ground before Elisha, and she caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away. Boom, holy hip it right there. Just insert that holy hip. Just Gehazi, get out of the way. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She's deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. And then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Ooh, she's, she's calling things to attention. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me or get my hopes up? Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly. Lay your staff on the child's face. But this woman of God, remember, she will not settle for the counterfeit version. She will not settle for the person that simply observed it or been around it. She wants the authentic anointing. And she says, but the boy's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned home with her. I love that in this portion of scripture, the Shunammite woman has not one time said her son is dead. Not one time to her husband, to the servant who's taking her on the donkey, to Gehazi, or even Elisha himself. Not one time is she declaring the agenda of the enemy. All she's saying is reminding the prophet of the word of the Lord. And what I love, it says in one translation, as she said, did I not ask you for, did I ask you for a son? She called the prophet to attention. In one translation, it says he stood up. And what I believe in this hour is we have an invitation from the Lord, not out of presumption, but out of genuine faith. To remind what, remind the spirit of God what he has promised. To enforce the promise of the word of God to come to pass in our life rather than accepting the dead things on our lap. God is saying in this hour, friends, stand up and declare what I have prophesied. Do not take the narrative of the enemy, but who do you say I am? This is the moment where the Shunammite woman had to make the choice, who do you say I am? She refused to repeat what the enemy was trying to send her way. Some of you tonight, I heard the Lord say, need to change your declaration over what you want breakthrough in. Some of you have been focusing and even repeating the narrative of the enemy. I'm not minimizing the difficulty I'm not minimizing the struggle. I have massive empathy and compassion for the reality of the pain and the suffering that is very real. However, we have a God who is working on our behalf 
and he is bigger than our contradiction. We have a word of God that is a reference to what is available. And I, like you, and like many in this room, will stand in faith until I see the promises of God come to pass until my reality, what's on my lap, what's in my life, matches what the Word of God says. I will not allow the contradiction, the suffering, the pain to become a definition for my theology. I will allow pain and suffering to work within me and to take me deeper in the places of God, but I refuse to allow it to change who he is. And I don't preach that to you from the place of things being easy. I preach that to you from a woman who's walked many valleys. I have learned in the valleys that my God is still who he says he is. I have learned that even in the suffering, my worship became sweeter. I have learned that there's a fragrance of an offering as a living sacrifice. That it's not about what I give, but it's about whom I host. I don't know about you, but I believe we have to shift from a consumerism in our mentality of I do this so I get this, to simply God, you're worthy because you already gave me everything I need. See, we create the contrast in the world to give a reference point to a generation that has observed a church hurt movement because it's been based off consumerism. But what about a generation that has been based off of a revelation of a God who's already given everything? And we can't help but have an abandoned worship because he's worthy. See, the Shunammite woman shows us in the midst of crisis, she's not running to this friend, to this prayer hotline, to this ministry, to this conference, to this prayer person, to this, that, or that. She's running to the presence of the Lord, and she's saying, but God, you did this. You initiated the miracle. You gave me the miracle. The enemy's trying to rob the miracle, but God, what do you say? I know you're a God of resurrection power. I will not return to my home without your presence. I will not go there unless you go with me. I will not I will not go back with a counterfeit version. I will only go back with the authentic version. So what happens? Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him the child is still dead. So when Elijah arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. And he went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. And then he, then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child, child's body began to grow warm again. Elijah got up walked back and forth across the room, and then stretched himself out on the child again. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And then Elijah summoned Gehazi, call the child's mother, he said. And when she came in, Elijah said, here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. And then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. See, the body had been cold. It had been there a while. There's been some of you, you've had the dead thing for 10 years. It's not new. It's been there decades. It's been there years. But what I love is what Elijah did. What did he do? He modeled to us 
how to get the place of resurrection. He shut the door. He went to the upper room. He removed all the distractions. He turned off his phone. He got off social media. He turned off the worship music. He just got with the presence of God, and he began to pray, and he began to intercede, and he began to call on who God is of who he knew him to be. Last year, I was in a personal challenge, a bit of a valley in my own life. I'd had powerful weekend of ministry, and Sean and I primarily love to travel together. That's our favorite thing. But once in a while, we're scheduled different, at different locations. I happened to come home on a Saturday. I had a powerful weekend with God. There was miracles, and I just saw God move incredibly. I, I call it like the God high. Hopefully that's not offensive to anyone with a religious spirit. But <laughs> I came home, and I was just like, woo, on cloud nine. It was just like I was celebrating, right, everything God had done. But there were some real challenges we were facing of just some warfare, different things. Sean and I are fantastic, but just external stuff coming at us. Anyone relate to that? And I came from this, like, God-high, powerful encounter. And Sean was a different location, so I came home, and I'm in bed. And the next morning was a Sunday. I woke up with congestion, not feeling well. And so I just decided to watch church online. And I'm grabbing, sipping my coffee and have my covers on and hair's on top of my head. And I'm wearing my glasses because I wear contacts. I'm wearing my glasses, my, my pajamas on. And they're worshiping online, and I'm like this. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus. Not really participating, not really engaged, just kind of feeling baited. I'm getting a bit baited for this kind of like pity party moment. And the enemy starts coming in reminding me of everything that's contradicting. I'm preaching all this, but here's reality. And I found myself kind of going down that place of like, man, I preach this. And, and interestingly enough, I'd had two people come up to me in areas of breakthrough that I was contending for in my own life, and they came forward with a testimony of when I'd been there last time, and they had the breakthrough, and I didn't. At the moment, I was so excited, I didn't even give it a second thought. But when I went home, in the quietness of the being by myself, anyone relate to this? And all of a sudden, the enemy began to twist a testimony that was intended to encourage me, to discourage me. And I heard the Lord say, what are you doing? And I go, watching online church. <laughs> Krista, what are you doing? I'm singing along. I'm singing some worship songs. He says, put down your coffee. I'm like, what? Okay. And he goes, remind the enemy who you are. And I was like, okay. He goes, Krista, get out of bed and remind the enemy who you are. Why are you taking this? Nothing about this is me. Look at the fruit of what it's producing in you. Nothing in the, I'm not in any of this. And all of a sudden it was like, I saw it. And then I got ticked. <laughs> and you don't want a ticked woman of God. Who's an intercessor? It's not good for the enemy. So in all my glory, hair on top of my head, pajamas, not feeling great, all the things. 
I whip back those covers, and I start pacing our hallway. And I start declaring who my God is. And I start declaring the promises of God. And that my current circumstances have nothing to do with who my God is. And I refuse to allow contradiction to change anything about the character of my king. I had to remind the enemy that every time he messes with me, he's going to pay a price. Sean and I have a core value in our marriage that any time the enemy attempts to hit us, he's going to pay a toll. I don't know if you know anything about tolls, but we have lots of tolls in the California area where we're from. $7 here, $10 there, $8, it's crazy. Well, every time the enemy hits us, the tolls look like more people coming to Jesus, more people getting set free, more people getting healed, us preaching the gospel. Every time the enemy hits, oh, you're going to pay a toll. So we become the most expensive hit the enemy's ever had. This is what the Shunammite woman did. The enemy tried ending her promise and her miracle, and she says, oh, you're going to pay a toll. <laughs> I'm going to the prophet of God, and we're going back to the upper room. And what happens? Her child gets raised from the dead. When the enemy wanted this to be the conclusion of her story of a lost hope and a lost miracle, God used that story for it to become her place of breakthrough and her place of resurrection power. And it became one of the greatest testimonies that had a ripple effect of blessing in her life. How do I know that? Let's keep reading. 2 Kings 8, verses 1 through 6, the woman from Shunem says returns home. Verse 1, Elijah had told the woman whose son he brought back to life, take your family and move to some other place, for the Lord has called for a famine on Israel that will last seven years. So the woman did as the man of God instructed. She took her family and settled in the land of the Philistines for seven years. After the famine ended, she then returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to see the king about getting her back, her house, and her land. As she came in, the king was talking to who? Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. The king had just said to Gehazi, tell me some stories about the great things Elisha has done. And Gehazi was telling the king at that exact moment that the time Elijah had brought a boy back to life. At that very moment, the mother of the boy walked in to make her appeal to the king about her house and her land. Look, the Lord, my King Gehazi explained, here's the woman now, and this is her son, the very one Elisha brought back to life. Is this true, the king asked her? She told him the story. So he directed one of his officials to see that everything, someone say everything. Someone say everything. That she had lost was restored. Someone say restored. Back to her. Wow, oh, man, I love this including the value of any crops that have been harvested during her abstinence. What, am I what is the Lord saying? He is saying, friends, we are in an hour in the church of restoration and back pay. Let me say it a different way. We are in a moment in the church, in the bride in America, where we are in a moment of restoration and restitution. 
There is back pay for what the enemy has tried to rob in the past years, but there's restoration. And what I love about restoration is restoration isn't before the bad thing happened, before the diagnosis took place, before that decision was made. Restoration, friends, is the original intention of God's design and plans. God is restoring to the fullness of his original design. And what I love about this is because she made space, because she created a moment, a place in her home where the presence of God could reside, it had a ripple effect of miracle after miracle after miracle in her life. A woman who was barren had a son. The son died. Now the son's resurrected. A famine comes to the land. The prophet says, go, so you're spared. Your family's safe. She goes, and she doesn't lose her life. Her family's protected during the famine. She comes back after seven years. Her land is taken. Her home is taken. She goes to the king, and now everything's restored, harvest, and even back pay. You can't tell me if you don't make room for Jesus, he is going to make sure everything's taken care of in your life. I want you to catch this tonight because there is a war over what you prioritize in your life in this hour. The assignment of the enemy is busyness. Pastors and leaders, as the worship team comes out, pastors and leaders, I want you to catch this. Those that are lay leaders or even volunteers and really for anyone for that matter. But I really want you to catch this. There is a war over what you give space to in your life. And what you give space to is where you will see fruit through. We are in a moment and in an hour where God is saying, will you put me first and there is no other. I got a prophetic word at the beginning of 2023 and I heard the Lord say, there's an invitation over 2023 where I am first and there is no other. He must be first. He must have the high place in our life. In every city, I grew up in Oregon, there's a lot of witchcraft. Covens, a lot of rituals, different things. Unfortunately, it's very common in the state of Oregon. When I was pastoring there, it was very normal to have witches and warlocks come to my services. And I was associate pastor at the time, but I was given regular opportunity to preach and minister. And it was interesting because every time I got up to preach, they happened to be there, which was not by accident. And the Lord gave me a strategy because I said, Jesus, if they're going to come to my services, I want them there, but they got to get saved. If they're just there to distract, then they need to leave. But if there's any opportunity for them to be saved, then so be it. I love it. Come, stay, receive. But the Lord says, declare because there's a war over the high places. I bring this up because occult practices, they actually fight for the high places of your city. Top of the mountaintops, whatnot, and that's where the rituals are done. That's where the stuff's done. It's on the high places. And the Lord says, I actually am in the high place, and there's a war over who's the supreme authority. I believe in our lives, if I can just take that illustration and bring it right to our lives, there's the priorities, let's call it our high place. What's your top tier priority? Is Jesus taking that space in your life? I know Jesus is most likely your Lord and Savior, 
but I'm actually talking about the place of your affection, your attention, and the priority of what's taking up your time. I remember years ago, someone said to me, tell me what takes up your time, and I'll tell you what your priorities are. I believe there's an invitation from the Lord tonight to get back into a place like the Shunammite woman that's putting Jesus back in the high places. There's a war over what's taking up the space and the attention in your life. And just like the Shunammite woman, she had to be intentional. She had to invest into it. She had to make space for it. She had to furnish it. She had to pay for it. But it was not shared space. It was solely reserved for the presence of God, for the prophet of God, for the word of God to land in her home. And because she invested, miracle after miracle after miracle kept unfolding in her life. As leaders, as people who follow Jesus, who love God, and I know there's more than just leaders here, but because I pastored for 13 years, I have a heart for pastors because I understand the war over your time. This is the hour where the church must make room for the Spirit of God. It cannot be a shared space. It must be authentically carved out just for him. There's some of us that have been fighting through distractions. We've been maybe fighting through the Gehazites of our life. But tonight your holy hip is about to be activated. And you're going to get that grit back. You're going to tap into that resiliency where you might have gotten tripped up along the way, listened to the wrong voice, you're going to get back up, and you're going to get back in position, and you're going to get to the presence of God. Others in this room, you're going to begin to change your declaration because you've been talking about what the enemy's been doing, but you're going to begin to talk about who God is. And you're going to remove the narrative of the enemy from your story. And you're going to begin to talk about who God is despite that. Even though even though, but God, but God, even though, even though, but God, but God. What did Elijah do to bring resurrection power? He laid upon the child, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. It's such a picture of the presence of the Lord. I'm going to talk about it on two different angles. One angle, presence of God. I believe when the Lord comes upon us, how we see things shifts, how we speak shifts, and what we steward on our hands changes. There's an exchange that happens when the presence of God comes upon you. You see things different. You talk different. You handle things different. But then on the flip side of it, when you feel like the enemy's laying upon you, I just keep hearing the Lord say, you need to get up on top of it. What do I mean? Sometimes you feel like the enemy's pinning you down. And you need to get up on top of that thing. The thing that's been holding your faith down, holding your, your, your hope back. You need to get up on top of that thing. Change your perspective. I'll end with this. My husband and I train in martial arts. 
And this last weekend, I completed my black belt test. Thank you. And I trained in Krav Maga, which is Israeli combat fighting. It was a three-day test. It was grueling. It was probably equivalent to like, like a Navy SEAL kind of a test. It was super intense. Day two was our sparring day. And part of our sparring, we did 35 rounds of sparring. But in addition to that, you had multiple attackers lay on you. You would get on your back, and they would literally lay on you. And the whole exercise was to actually get out from underneath them and be able to stand up. You did that laying on your stomach, and you did that laying on your back. It's incredibly difficult when everyone's putting all their weight on you, and it's one to three, and the odds are against you. But there's some tricks that when you've been trained, how to get out from tight spaces and places. One of my go-tos, because we had trained in that, obviously, prior to the test, was when I'm on my stomach. I've learned, my husband is actually like five black belts. He's, I'm one. I'm I'm like novice. My husband's like actually legit ninja. He's like amazing. But he actually helps train me. And one of the things he showed me was when I'm on my stomach, one of your greatest places of leverage, say you're like this, and it feels like the enemy's all on your back. You feel outnumbered. You feel the pressure. They're yelling in your ear. They're saying all this stuff. You feel defeated. One of your biggest things is to be able to push yourself up to your side. Because if you can just get to your side, all of a sudden you can use your top leg to begin to push on the attackers until you actually get out. And you can come up to a standing base. Here's what I picture I saw when I was praying for you this afternoon. Some of you have felt pinned down by the enemy, but tonight you're going to turn to your side, you're going to push out, and you're going to stand up. What does that mean? You're getting your fighting stance back. You're changing your perspective. When you're on the ground and all you see is the floor and all you feel is pressure, you don't experience the faith. You're not full of vision. But tonight, when you pop up out of that space, you step back. You can see things for what they are. And you can speak faith to the mountains in front of you. All of a sudden, hope of God arises in you. You begin to recognize that the King of Kings and the great I Am that is within you is greater than he that's in the world. You begin to understand that you are not the tail, but you are the head. You begin to understand that the King of Kings is greater than anything that opposes you. And all of a sudden, it shifts your perspective. I felt like for the state of Minnesota, the Lord says some of you, not all of you, have been in a sense face down, but tonight you're going to get up, you're going to kick off the enemy, and you're going to stand in a posture, and you're going to begin to declare who God is, and you're going to see things shift. You came here tonight to get your fight back. You came here tonight to get to the presence of the Lord. You came here tonight to get Gehazi out of the way. I want to invite you to respond to this word for your life tonight. Because I, de- I believe tonight is a divine exchange. Shaking off the stuff that's holding you back and receiving faith. Changing your perspective. I'm going to ask you all to stand. And as you stand tonight, I want you to take inventory. I don't say this lightly, nor do I say this casually. I say this very intentionally. I truly believe the altar is a place of encounter, it's a place of freedom, and it's a place of transformation. Tonight, many of you are going to come to the altar tonight. 
Hands may be laid on you. Hands may not be laid on you. But Jesus is going to encounter you. There's a place of freedom where your viewpoint and your perspective is going to change tonight. And all of a sudden, you're going to begin to see who God is. Others are going to come to the altar tonight because you still have the dead thing on your lap. And tonight is the night where you give it to Jesus and it's going to get resurrected. Grieving clothes are going to come off tonight. Joy is going to come in the room tonight. Some of you may be hit with a holy laughter. That might make some people uncomfortable, but laughter heals and laughter transforms and laughter sets free. I'm not talking about fleshly laughter. I'm talking about laughter that comes from the Holy Ghost. Laughter that makes you go, Lord, you're still good. Things may not be good, but God's still good. Some of you may dance tonight. You've never danced before. Why am I going through all this? Because I believe, Minnesota, you're in an hour where God is redefining you. I believe as a state and as a denomination is no longer business as usual. I believe people that you have known for 20 years, that you've known them in the spirit one way, they're going to be redefined tonight and they're going to do things and pray differently. They're going to preach differently. They're going to prophesy differently because they're encountering a God tonight that is reminding them of who he is in the midst of everything they've walked through. Tonight is a night of freedom. Tonight is a night of victory. And tonight is a night of breakthrough. If that's you all over this room, I want you to come to the altar saying, that's my night. That's me tonight. I want the breakthrough. I want the transformation. I want the perspective shift tonight. I want to get out from being pinned by the enemy. I don't want to stand up. I want my resiliency back. I want, I want my grit in the spirit. I want my declaration to change. And the presence of God is going to encounter you tonight. God is doing a new thing in the assembly of God of Minnesota. This is not a denomination. This is a movement. I'm going to say that again. You're not a part of a denomination. You're part of a movement that's going to bring the Spirit of God to set the captives free. There's a healing anointing on this movement. There's a freedom that's about to get released over many of you as pastors and leaders, as lay people as volunteers for the house of God. And I just believe there's a transaction in the spirit today. As we go into a time of worship, I want you to encounter God. And I want you to begin to engage with what God's doing in the spirit right now. Because there's a transaction all over this place. I can literally see chains falling, minds being renewed, and the spirit of God falling all over this place.